Good morning, everybody. So thank you for having me. Um, so I feel very welcomed, but let me add my welcome to that of Andrew's and of John's. Welcome, everyone, to the house of the Lord this morning. It is good to be here. Yes, so Andrew has given you a, a short version of, of me, so you, we are mostly introduced. I was raised in the Methodist Church, almost literally. My parents were involved from very young, and so I was. I spent many evenings, you know, in the back of the hall with my duvet, the rest of my siblings, while my parents were running courses. So, yes, almost literally raised in the church, and then I've been in PBC for six years or so now, and serving as deacon in the evening congregation for two years. So, so that's me. And today, I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you. And after this whole series that we've been through, one of the things that I've been struck with was the beauty of God's precepts. The beauty of the truth that God reveals to us through his word. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, is the beauty of God's precepts. And because I'm a scientist and not a novelist, I'm going to start with my main point, and I'll end with it as well. I'm not going to leave you in suspense as to where I'm going. But what I want us to remember is that God has revealed a lot of very profound, very useful, and very beautiful truth to us through his word. Jesus brings these precepts to life and gives us a practical way forward to being part of bringing God's kingdom here on earth. Okay, so that's, that's kind of a long main point, but anyway, we'll get there. And so if you fall asleep now, at least you'll have heard the main point. But of course, none of you will fall asleep. And we're going to do three scripture readings interspersed among the text. And many of you will have heard the beauty of God's precepts and immediately have thought of Psalm 119, and you would be correct, but you'll also be relieved to hear that I'm not going to read the whole psalm. Otherwise, I mean, it's very tempting. You read the whole psalm, five minutes of sermon, and then we're all done. But that's probably not the most responsible way of using my time. So Psalm 119, just reading from verses 41 to 48. <clears throat> May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands which I love that I may meditate on your decrees. It's a really beautiful psalm. Like each of the sections really just brings out the pure beauty and joy of God's word. And sometimes, though, truth is not pretty, right? Sometimes the truth can be ugly, right? There is fallenness and sin in the world, and that means that sometimes the hard truth is hard and ugly, right? Sometimes the person you really admire turns out not to be as good as you thought, you know, maybe they're actually not really a nice person, even though you admired them. And if you were to maybe, so I have a, 
a three-and-a-half-year-old niece, and if you were to show her artwork to a connoisseur, the honest answer would not be, oh, this is amazing, we should put it in a gallery, right? The honest answer is, it's not a very good artwork. But you wouldn't say that, because for a three-year-old, it's a perfectly good artwork. But in some sense, the ugly truth is there. But obviously, you know, you don't just say that, because it's not necessarily loving. And there is certainly this kind of ugly truth in the Bible. If you've read through the stories in the Old Testament, the book of Judges is full of really horrible facts. And the consequences of sin are inherently ugly, right? Because of the fullness of the world, there is ugliness. There is hardness. But there are also truths which may at first seem ugly and at first seem very hard indeed. But after the fact, we realize they really are beautiful. And quite a lot of God's truth probably falls into this category. For example, maybe many of you can look back on things in your life where you've been challenged. Maybe you've been challenged by a person who's brought up something that they think maybe you could be doing this better. Or maybe you read something in scripture which you read and you thought, hmm, I don't know how to feel about that. And it's really challenged you and made you think. And in the moment of reading that, or the moment of someone telling you, look, I don't think the way you're doing this is correct, it's uncomfortable. At first you think, that's not nice, that doesn't make me feel good, that's not beautiful. But as we work through it, as we understand why God has chosen to reveal this truth, we look back and we say, hmm, actually, there is beauty there. Actually, when I look back, it is a beautiful truth. And so a lot of the teachings might fall into this category where at first you think, ah, do I have to do that? But then you realize, well, in some sense, maybe I don't have to. But God wants me to. And maybe that's more important. And then there are truths which are simply beautiful from start to finish. Grace. Isn't grace beautiful? The fact that we can be in communion with God. Like, that's just incredible, right? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's hard, and there's ugliness in that, but the message is truly profoundly beautiful. The majesty of God. The fact that God reveals himself to us and allows us to have a relationship with him. The plan that God has for us as humans from the beginning of time. Both as an entire species of people created in his image, and personally as individuals. That plan is beautiful. And certainly, God reveals beauty in the way he wants us to live, and the way he reveals that to us. It's not just practical things, uh, which I will call eat your vegetables truth, right? If you eat your vegetables, you will grow up healthy and strong. And if you've ever tried to feed a kid Brussels sprouts, you'll know that can be a very hard truth to get down. Um, heck, try and feed me Brussels sprouts. Um, and so we have this kind of practical thing where we know if we do it, it will lead to growth. It will lead to development. It will make us better people. And in terms of God's truth, it will bring us closer to Christ and closer to God. It is a good thing, but it's hard. And it's practical, and it's nuts and bolts, and it's you know, changing things about the way we live. And you know, maybe we ask to give something up for him. We, we realize 
in our lives, there's something which is getting in the way. And that's a practical thing. We need to step back and say, okay, we are called to deny ourselves. There is a hardness there. And Jesus makes us very clear, right? You can't read any of the Gospels without getting the very clear message that Jesus tells us. It's going to be tough. There are going to be sacrifices. But there is also truth where there is beauty almost immediately. And this kind of truth, let's call it straightening the rug truth. Where maybe you've seen like a rug or a carpet lying on the floor. And you know that carpet has a beautiful pattern. You know, it's been designed very carefully to have a beautiful pattern when it's spread out smooth. But when it's all crumpled and skew, that beauty is completely obscured. But as soon as you come along, you straighten it out, maybe shake it a bit to get the dust off, you very immediately get to see the beauty. And so you see immediately, as soon as you do it, you see why it was a good idea to straighten that rug, because the beauty is immediately apparent. And there is actually something beautiful about these truths in the Bible. Probably, if you think about it, even in the moment of self-sacrifice or of choosing to love someone, there is a profound beauty when you decide, okay, I'm not going to do what I want, I'm going to do what God wants, and that is beautiful. To love someone is beautiful. To help someone, to treat someone with respect, to treat someone as a fellow member of God's kingdom is beautiful. And like I said, even self-sacrifice, though it's one of the hardest things to do, to give of yourself with nothing in return, is one of the most beautiful things that we have as humans. And so I've started with beauty, and I'm betraying my Wesleyan upbringing, because I'm going to do a three-point sermon of the beauty of God's precepts. Um, so we've discussed beauty. And let's discuss God, right? Ten minutes, and we'll cover everything there is about God, right? No, not a chance. But in the context of commands and precepts and so on, the important thing that we need to remember that the rules by which we are living, so to say, the guidelines, the precepts, the principles that govern our choices, are not human-made. They come from God. And so God had a lot of words to say to the Israelites about this. So you can almost read through any of the prophets and you will find some text like this. Um, so what I've taken is from Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 to 14. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. It's so easy to create a set of rules and we say, by this we achieve goodness. And this is something which probably you've heard many times, right? And it's something which we speak about and we have conversations about, of this idea of legalism and just rules, 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 and the perception that people have of the church where, oh, if you come to the church, you just follow these rules and so on. And it really becomes easy to worship the rules or the precepts 
the principles that God has sent rather than worshipping the God who sent them, right? And then when we start worshipping the rules instead of worshipping the God, we mold the rules into what we think should be correct, what we think is better. Surely if God had spoken this in our day and age, he would have said it like this, right? We want to reinterpret the rules. But we really have to remind ourselves that these rules are very, very, very secondary to the God who sent them, the God, the almighty creator of the universe. And truly, he desires mercy, not sacrifice, as we read in Hosea 6 and as Jesus references twice in Matthew 9 and in 12. Mercy, not sacrifice. It's about the God, not about the rules, primarily. And as a result of this, we need to be able to humbly step back and accept that we are flawed, right? Sometimes, even when we think what we are doing is the best thing, even when we are trying to do the best, what we do seems reasonable, we still need to step back and say, is this what I think is good? Is it according to God's word? Or is it merely based on human rules? Do I think this is a good idea? Does God think this is a good idea? And you can imagine preparing a sermon on this. My preparation, I have to think, wait, do I think that saying this is a good idea? Or does God think that saying this is a good idea? And you get in this weird, twisted uh, state of mind. But at the end of the day, we are blessed to have the truth in God's word. right? So when we ask this question, do I think it's a good idea or does God think it's a good idea? We can actually answer it concretely in many cases by coming to the word and saying, well... God's word says this. Therefore, yes. So for example, when I say, do I think this is a good, good idea? Or does God think this is a good idea? I can go back to this passage, Isaiah. I can go back to Matthew 9, Matthew 12, Hosea 6, and be, okay, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. This is true because it's in the Bible, not because I thought of it and therefore it must be true. In our Young Adults Life group last Wednesday, someone asked the question, a very simple question, and yet extremely, extremely profound, which is, what does it truly mean to live a life surrendered to God? And you can probably give you know, a short answer and say, okay, well, it means obeying him and you know, doing what he wants and loving him and so on. But what does it really mean? And that's something in this context of the beauty of God's precepts. It's quite a pertinent question. Because while it will vary in the details from person to person, what does surrendering God mean to you might, in the nitty-gritty, mean something different to what it means for me. But there are certain points that will always remain in what it means to surrender to God. Particularly, if we have to submit to God and his word. If we accept that this is the truth, then that's what we have to submit to. We say, okay, God is right, and if God is right, then I might be wrong. And on a practical level, we realize that we are not our own, but that we were bought at a price, right? As 1 Corinthians 6 says. And that tells us what we should do with our bodies. We should treat them as these valuable assets which have been saved for God's kingdom, right? We're not just out there doing our own thing under our own power, but we have been bought at an unbelievable price of Jesus' blood, and that means we should live in a certain way, out of honor of the one who was willing to die for us. 
God is always the highest authority. And that means that he is the most important one that we seek approval from. The most important figure. And to borrow an idea from Tim Keller, the inner circle that many of us, probably all of us if we're honest, long to be accepted by. Right, so maybe that inner circle that you long to be accepted by is management at work, is a group of friends, is a particularly influential group of musicians or sports team selectors, maybe even church leaders, right? That is the inner circle, the, the fancy people who you want to be accepted by. But this inner circle, ultimately, of humans is never that important, right? They are just human. The inner circle that really counts consists of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the inner circle where we really seek our approval. So let's talk about precepts. And I'll get some more water. Let the tension build. No. Um, So let's turn a little bit more to understand about how we can understand God's teaching in the Bible. At first, let me define what a precept is. Because some of us will know, maybe some of you know uh, precept ministries, which is just down Ringwood Drive. But a precept really is a principle that governs our actions. It's not a law per se. Um, It's not a, a formal gazetted thing. But it's a principle And I'll discuss this in some more detail just now. But just to have in our mind, what is a precept? And so I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. And so there's been a whole bunch of stuff talking about the supremacy of Christ and whatnot, whatnot. And it comes to here, and the writer says, Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven, and you think about that song we just sang, about how you know, things become shadows in the light of God. And actually, there's some, there's some nice parallels. Good choice, thank you. Um, and this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the temp- tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Right, so the law of Moses, all the commandments and the laws that God gives in the Old Testament are important, are useful for teaching and training, as we read in Second Timothy. But we also need to be aware that we are under a new covenant. Right? A covenant of grace mediated by Jesus Christ. We are not bound by checklists and some kind of board of divine examiners who are looking down upon us and taking notes and saying, you sinned, you sinned, 
mm, you could have done this better, right? That's not what we are about. We have this new covenant of Jesus' blood, which covers over all of that and says, look, come in, sinners saved by grace. And this quite possibly is the most beautiful truth in existence, right? That we are covered by grace to be in communion with our creator. And so while there is this profound grace, Jesus also makes it very clear once again that we should still live according to God's intention for our lives, right? Just because we've been saved by grace, by no means should we continue sinning. And Paul has lots to say about this in his various letters. But by coming to Jesus, we are really transformed into these new beings. And we start understanding these intentions, these precepts, these principles of how we should live much more clearly. Because now we have access to grace, we have access to God, we can pray, we have the Holy Spirit guiding us. And suddenly these precepts, these principles make a lot of sense. And we want to do them. And so, hence my, uh, my totally planned use of the word precepts. If I'm, you know, full disclosure, when I started preparing the sermon, I thought, okay, Beauty of God's Precepts seems like a, a good title, having read through Psalm 119, but I could have chosen laws or statutes or commands because you know, the, the psalmist uses those terms sort of as poetic variations for more or less the same idea. You can go into details of the difference between law, statute, command, and I'm sure there are many more educated people than me here who could uh, explain those things to you. But by the grace of God, I chose the word precept, and I'm very glad I did, because I probably would have changed it. Because the idea of a precept as a guiding principle, an underlying principle, rather than just a law that thou shalt do this, is actually really, really profound. So it means that while the letter of the law of Moses, right, that letter of the law, the practical, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, sacrifice your goat this way, do not sacrifice your goat that way, if you don't have a goat, you can use two doves, all of that has been superseded by the blood of the true lamb, Jesus Christ. But God has not changed. God is still the same. He still has the basic desire for us to lead fulfilling, loving, and meaningful lives. That remains that has been since the beginning of time, and it will remain until he comes again in glory. Right? And this means we should take note of his precepts, the way he wants us to live, because he has designed us in a certain way. And this is something to love about science and the progress that people make. And every now and then, I'm just I'm reading a journal article or whatever it might be, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, wow, this aligns so much with what I know about God. And like, especially as psychology um, progresses and all these things about, oh, you know, it turns out that humans were actually, you know, we operate best under these conditions. And it's like, huh, well, there was this book written about 5,000 years ago, which, you know, mentions some of these things. And like, huh. Anyway, the point is that God has these precepts, which are really profound, really deep, and really useful. And then something which just really struck me yesterday when I was rereading this, uh, this passage from Psalm 119 is this notion I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. There is a freedom in the truth. And again, we probably talk about this a lot, but there is a really important truth in the fact that God's guidelines, God's precepts, God's suggestions and desires for our lives, as well as his laws, like some things are really important to God, these give us a freedom in how we act. 
rather than restricting our joy. Because we are not conflicted. We actually have a decision-making mechanism. If you take away rules, you take away structure, you take away any sort of meaningful form of restriction, in any case, like you can't make a decision, right? How am I to walk down the street if... You know, I can't decide these things. Or maybe I'll be tempted by 12 different things at the same time, and I don't know what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong, what's good for me, what's good for those around me, right? If you don't have any kind of input on those ideas, your life is not free. Your life is spent in an agony of indecision trying to figure out what is good. But, I mean, I've personally found this to be one of the most life-changing things is realizing that we don't have to be riddled with doubt about every decision because a lot of stuff is given to us in Scripture. We can go to the Word and be, okay, I can immediately scrap a whole bunch of disastrous decisions because I can see clearly they don't align with God's truth, his precepts, right? And obviously within that, there are still many decisions which are incredibly hard because, you know, the Bible is very quiet in certain things because, you know, they weren't in the context or some things perhaps God does give us freedom about and he doesn't mind too much, although he probably has a preferred option. But we can be fairly confident that if we make our decisions based on the truth revealed in God's word, we don't have to doubt that. You know, so it just makes life so much more free when we can be confident in that. And confident in that is also quite important, right? So we know that God's precepts are beautiful. We know that they are true. Do we know them? Do we really know them on a deep level? Because there is a world of difference between thinking, this is probably correct, and knowing deeply and confidently that is true. For example, when I mark maths exams, oh man. So there are some answers which are clearly, logically, concisely written. You can see the student has studied, they know their work, and everything is laid out perfectly. You look at it, and at a glance, you can see they're getting full marks. And even if you had to mark it in detail, they're not waffling at any point. They're just going ping, ping, ping. QED, right? You have this list of straightforward, clear things because they know what they are saying. They know what they are doing. On the other hand, there are answers where the student kind of knows what's going on. You know, they, they have some ideas that mm, this should probably be here, this should probably be here, but they waffle on and they write these circuitous paragraphs and they add in extra steps just in case one of them is right and you know, maybe I'll skip the other two and just look at the one correct one. Um, because they are not totally sure that what they're saying is correct. And even if they get the correct answer, they get there with the sort of trying to cover their bases, trying to be cautious in case, oh, maybe this one, maybe the step wasn't perfect. Let me just add some words so that it looks like I know what I'm saying. Wait, it's actually doing the opposite. When you know the truth confidently, you know that you know it. You're not just thinking, I think this is true. And let me try. But you know it. This is true. And you're confident in that and you're happy with that. You can explain it. And you can live it without trying to cover it up. Because you know that this is true. You know this is what you want to do. This is your decision. And as the psalmist says, then I can answer anyone who taunts me. Because you know the truth. You're not guessing. 
And so really, I do encourage all of us to immerse ourselves in Scripture and to enjoy the beauty that God reveals to us here in his word, in his precepts. And you can read almost any passage of Scripture. Okay, not any. There are some where you really have to take into context. Again, judges, right? It's rough. But you read a whole bunch of Scripture and you get glimpses, different aspects of God's character, of his plan for humanity, understanding of Jesus and why Jesus had to come and be. And all these things point towards the beauty of his precepts, his principles that govern his plan. So, I mean, some of these things, right? The Sermon on the Mount, the Old Testament, letters such as Ephesians, they have all these practical guidelines of how we can live our lives. And there is something very, very beautiful about how God wants us to live our lives. He has not designed us randomly, accidentally, or maliciously. Although the fall has brought about so much suffering and evil and hardship, the original game plan for humanity, as revealed in God's word, is truly beautiful. Very often, we find that when we are sticking to these precepts, we are spending time with God, our creator, we see the beauty in life so much more. And so I'm going to close with an illustration, which is that maybe you've been part of a sports team or you've watched a sports team that has gone into a match with the most perfect, beautiful strategy, the most amazing game plan. I've certainly been in, you know, in rooms before the match where you, you have this game plan mapped out, every movement is choreographed, every player's role is there, like, nailed, this is what you're going to do, this is what you're going to do, you have your set pieces, everything's clear. Like, in your mind, like, how can we possibly lose, right? This is perfect. This is amazing. And, and then you get into the game, uh, and immediately it falls apart, right? The darned opposition players keep doing what they're not supposed to do, and stuff gets difficult, and suddenly everyone's losing their head and forgetting the plan and going off and doing things. The real test in that situation is how the team, names this the team, not just the captain or the coach, but the whole team, has to come back and adapt to this challenge. They have to overcome and weather the storm of uncertainty and this stuff that has suddenly come against them and get back to some form of the original plan. Because you know that plan is good. And maybe that plan suddenly becomes just, you know, get curtly arms into space and pass on the ball, and that works. But we really need to think about this because... I find this to be like a really useful way of thinking about God's plan for the world. Because in the light of the fallen world, right, where there is ugliness and there is hardness, there is still the original beauty and perfection of God's creation. And we've made mistakes, like we might do in a sports match. And we've gone off course, and we suddenly realize, whoa, this was not the plan. But by grace by the precious grace that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has brought us, we can get back towards this original plan. Um, as Pastor Andrew preached in his sermon a few weeks ago about the idea of this whole arc of God's creation, the whole story from creation, fall, sanctification, and then you know, the, the recovery towards the full beauty. We are part of that ark, and we can bring that kingdom forward now. And this is really where the beauty of God's precepts lead us, is that 
we can be part of bringing God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We can be part of the answer to prayer. And so I really encourage you to remember that. God has revealed a lot of very profound, useful, and beautiful truth to us through his word. Jesus brings these precepts to life and gives us a practical way forward to be part of bringing God's kingdom here on earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that you have not left us alone in the dark. You have not left us struggling and suffering without knowing a Savior, but you have given us Jesus. You have given us your Spirit. And we come to you and we say thank you. We honor you and praise you, the Creator God, the Almighty God who loves us so much. And Father, I pray for each of us that we will seek your truth, that we will see your truth and we will understand your beauty as we look on your face and just realize how much you love us and how much you have done to us that we may love you and worthy magnify your name. Amen.